Darkcast Network. Out of the shadows comes the best of indie podcasts. In the late 1940s in the United States, priests performed a series of exorcisms on an anonymous boy documented under a pseudonym. The boy was alleged victim of demonic possession, and the events were recorded. Subsequent supernatural claims surrounding the events were used as elements in William Peter Blatley's 1971 novel, The Exorcist. My name is DJ, and this is the Mythical True Crime Podcast. When priests from the Roman Catholic Church performed a series of exorcisms in the late 40s, it was documented under the pseudonym Ronald Doe, or Robbie Manaheim. The 14-year-old boy again was an alleged victim of demonic possession. This is that story. Now, the origins of the claim started in mid-1949. Several newspaper articles printed anonymous reports of an alleged possession and exorcism. The source for these reports were thought to be the family's former pastor, Luther Miles Schultz. According to one account, a total of 48 people witnessed this exorcism, nine of them being Jesuits. According to the author Thomas B. Allen, Jesuit priest Father Walter H. Halloran was one of the last surviving eyewitnesses of the events, and he participated in the exorcism. Allen wrote that a diary kept by the attending father, Raymond Bishop, detailed the exorcism performed on the previously identified Roland Doe, or Robbie. Speaking in 2013, Allen emphasized that the definitive proof that the boy known as Robbie was possessed by malevolent spirits is unattainable. According to Allen, Halloran also expressed his skepticism about the potential paranormal events before his death. When asked in an interview to make a statement verifying that this boy had actually been demonically possessed, Halloran responded, saying, No, I can't go on the record. I never made an absolute statement about the things because I don't feel that they w- I was qualified. Now, in... This person's name, Roland's early life, he was born to a German Lutheran family, and during the 1940s, the family lived in Cottage City, Maryland. According to Allen, Roland was uh, an only child and depended upon his parents in his household for playmates, primarily his aunt Harriet. His aunt, who was actually a spiritualist, introduced Roland to the Ouija board, which then he expressed uh, great interest in it. Uh, The exorcism is according to Thomas B. Allen. After Aunt Harriet's death, the family experienced many strange goings-ons. Strange noises, furniture moving on its own accord, and ordinary objects such as vases flying or levitating when the boy was nearby. The family had nowhere to turn, so they went to Lutheran pastor Luther Miles Schultz for help. Long interested in parapsychology, 
Schultz arranged for the boy to spend the night at his home in order to observe him. When parapsychologist Joseph Banks Rhine learned that Schultz claimed he had witnessed household objects and furniture seemingly moving by themselves, Rhine, quote, wondered if Schultz unconsciously exaggerated some of the facts. Schultz advised the boy's parents to see a Catholic priest. According to the traditional story, the boy then underwent a number of exorcisms. Edward Hughes, a Roman Catholic priest, conducted an exorcism on Roland at the Georgetown University Hospital, a Jesuit institution. During the exorcism, the boy allegedly slipped one of his hands out of the restraints, broke a bedspring from under the mattress, and used it as an impromptu weapon, slashing at the priest's arms and resulting in the exorcism ritual being halted for momentarily. The family traveled to St. Louis, where Ronald's cousin contacted one of the professors at the St. Louis University, Bishop, who in turn spoke to William Bowden, which is an associate at the college church. Together, both priests visited Roland and uh, in his relative's home, where the alleged observed the bed shaking, flying objects, and the boy speaking in guttural voices and exhibiting an aversion to anything remotely appearing sacred. Bodern was granted permission from the archbishop to perform another exorcism. Now, this exorcism took place at the Alexian Brothers Hospital in South St. Louis, Missouri, which was later changed to South City Hospital. Now, before the next exorcism ritual began, another priest named Walter Halloran was called as from the psychiatric wing of the hospital, where he had been asked to assist Bonin. William Van Rue, another third Jesuit priest, was also there to assist. Halloran stated later that during the scene, words such as the word evil or hell, along with other various marks, started to appear on the teenager's body. Allegedly, during the Litany of the Saints portion of the exorcism ritual, the boy's mattress began to shake violently. Moreover, Roland broke Halloran's nose during the process. Halloran then told reporters that after the rite was over, an anonymous subject of the exorcism went on to lead a rather ordinary life. Later in his 1993 book, Possessed, The True Story of an Exorcism, author Thomas B. Allen offered Quote, a consensus of today's experts that Robbie was just a deeply disturbed boy with nothing supernatural about him. Author Mark Obsesnik questioned many of the supernatural claims associated with this story and proposed that Ronald or Roland Doe was simply a spoiled, disturbed bully who threw deliberate tantrums to get attention or to get out of school. Obsesnik also reported that Halloran, who was present during the exorcism, never actually heard the boy's voice change, and that he thought the boy merely mimicked Latin words that he heard clergymen say, rather than gaining a sudden ability to speak Latin. Obsesnik reported that when marks were found on the boy's body, Halloran failed to check the boy's fingernails to see if he had made the marks himself. Obsesnik also questioned the story of Hughes' attempt to exercise the boy and his subsequent injury, saying that he could not find any evidence to such an episode actually occurring. 
During his investigation, author Obsesnik discovered a few items. The exorcism did not take place at the address of 3210 Bunker Hill Road in Mount Rainier, Maryland. In fact, the boy had never even lived in Mount Rainier. The boy's home was in Cottage City, Maryland. Much of the commonly accepted information about this story is based on hearsay, is not documented, and was never fact-checked. There was no evidence of Father E. Albert Hughes even visiting the boy's home. Had he admitted to been uh, Georgetown Hospital and requested that the boy be restrained at the hospital, nor any attempt of the exorcism of the boy at Georgetown Hospital, or even an injury by the boy during that exorcism or at any other time. There's also ample evidence refuting claims that the father, Hughes, suffered any emotional breakdown and disappeared from the college city community after which. According to Opsonik, individuals connected to the incident were influenced by their own specializations. So the psychiatrist, Rob Doe, suffered from a mental illness. To the priests, this was a case of demonic possession. To writers and film movie producers, it was a great story to exploit for profit. Those involved saw that there were what they were trained to see, really. Each purported to look at the facts, but just the opposite was true. In actuality, they manipulated the facts and emphasized information that fit their own agendas. Obsesnik wrote later after that he located and spoke with the neighbors and childhood friends of the supposed boy, most of whom were only referenced by initials, and he concluded that the boy had been very clever trickster, whoever had pulled pranks and frightened his mother and the foolish children in the neighborhood. Now, there's others on the other side that say, for example, there's a man named Joe Nickel, who is a skeptic. He wrote that, there was, quote, simply no credible evidence to suggest that the boy was possessed by demons or evil spirits and maintains that the symptoms of the possession can be childishly simple and easy to fake. Nickel dismissed suggestions that supernatural forces made scratches or markings or caused words to appear on the teenager's body in unreachable places, saying, a determined youth, probably even without a wall mirror, could have easily managed such a feat. If it is actually occurred, I'd be impressed. Although the scratched messages proliferated, they never again appeared on a difficult-to-reach portion of the boy's anatomy. On one occasion, the boy was reported seen scratching the words hell and Christ on his chest with his own fingernails. And according to Nickel, quote, Nothing is more reliably reported in this case was beyond the abilities of a teenager to produce. Tantrums, trances, moved furniture, hurling objects, automatic writing, superficial scratches, and other phenomena were just the kinds of things someone Rob's age could have accomplished, just as others have done before and ever since. Indeed, the elements of poltergeist phenomena, spirit communication, and demonic possession, taken both separately and especially together, as one progress to the other, suggested nothing much more than role-playing involving trickery. 
Nickel also dismissed stories of the boy's prodigious strength, saying that he showed nothing more than what he could have been summoned by any agitated teenager, and criticized popular accounts of the exorcism for what he termed a stereotypical storybook portrayal of the devil. There are some religious perspectives, however, as two Christian academics, Terry Cooper, a professor of psychology, and Cindy Epperson, a professor of sociology, both wrote that advocates for possession believe that, although they are not frequent, exorcisms are necessary for casting out the demonic. And cases of genuine possession cannot be explained by psychiatry. Cooper and Epperson both devoted a chapter of their book, Evil, Satan, Sin, and Psychology, in a case and dismissed natural explanations in favor of a supernatural perspective regarding the nature of evil. After this quick message, we'll be right back. If this is your first time tuning in, I encourage you to subscribe to the show so you can hear all the other episodes, as well as what we have coming up in the next few weeks. Now, as you know, literature and film, this exorcism became the case uh, that inspired the 1971 novel The Exorcist by William Peter Blatley, which in turn was adapted into the successful 1973 horror film of the same title. This case also inspired a 2000 movie titled Possessed, which is said to be closer to the original story in Alan's book. A documentary was also produced to make a case titled In the Grip of Evil, as well as other documentary films. Uh, one came out in 2010 titled The Haunted Boy, The Secret Diary of the Exorcist, in which a group of investigators traveled to the locations in question and uncovered the diary that is said to have and kept by William Bowden. And now some words for my affiliates. Flaviar is a band of spirit enthusiasts inspired by culture, rich history, and the art of distillation. They forge the world and spirits for the finest, rarest, and most unique expressions out there, and pack it all in a 21st century members club. You are what you drink. Diversity and quality matters and all that should most certainly be enjoyed with style and in good company. Times have changed since the dark era of the 1920s Prohibition, when the sale and consumption of alcoholic beverages was outlawed. Now there are over 15,000 different spirits on the market, and each year, hundreds of crafted distilleries open their doors. While not outlawed, 99% of these drinks are just as unreachable as they were 90 years ago. Most bars and liquor stores carry around 10 to 50 bottles on average, with Jack and Johnny always in the forefront of the show. We believe everyone deserves a place in the spotlight, and we fight for equal opportunity for producers to reach individuals like you. We, ladies and gents, lead the speakeasy movement into the modern day. By following the affiliate link below, not only will you be helping the show out monetarily, but you can give Flaviar a shot and see if you like the brand. Again, it helps me monetarily, but it also gives you a deal as well. In West Virginian folklore, the Mothman is a humanoid creature reportedly seen at the Point Pleasant area 
from November 15, 1966 to December 15, 1967. The first newspaper report to be published in the Point Pleasant Register, dated November 16, 1966, titled, Couples See Man-Sized Bird, Creature, Something. The national press soon picked up on the reports and spread the story across the United States. The source of the legend has been believed to have originated from sightings of an out-of-migration sandhill crane, or a heron. The creature was introduced to the wider audience by Gray Barker in 1970 and was later popularized by John Keel in the 1975 book The Mothman Prophecies, claiming that there was supernatural events related to the sightings and the connection to the collapse of the Silver Bridge. The book was later adapted into a 2002 film starring Richard Gere of the same title. There's also an annual festival at Point Pleasant devoted entirely to the Mothman legend. Now, if you've never heard of the Mothman story, here's a little history. On November 15, 1966, two young couples from Point Pleasant, Roger and Linda Scarberry, and Steve and Mary Mallet, told police that they had seen a large white creature whose eyes glowed red, standing at the side of the road near the TNT area, which is the site of a former World War II munitions plant. Linda described it as a slender, muscular man, about seven feet tall, with white wings. She also said that she was unable to discern its face due to some hypnotic effect of its eyes. Distressed, the witnesses drove away at speed and said that the creature flew after their car, making a horrible screeching sound pursuing them. It followed them as far as the Point Pleasant city limits. During the next few days, other people reported similar sightings after local newspapers reported them. Two volunteer firemen who said they had seen it said that it was a large bird with red eyes. Mason County Sheriff George Johnson commented that he believed that the sightings were due to the unusual large heron. Contractor Newell Patridge told Johnson that he aimed a flashlight at the creature at the nearby field, and its eyes glowed, quote, like bicycle reflectors. Additionally, he blamed buzzing sounds from his television set and the disturbance of his German Shepherd dog to the creature. Wildlife biologist Robert L. Smith at the West Virginia University told reporters that descriptions and sightings all fit the Sandhill Crane descriptions, which is a large American crane, almost as tall as a man, with a seven-foot wingspan featuring circles of reddish coloring around its eyes. The bird may have been wandering out of its migration route, and therefore was unrecognizable at first because it's not native to that region. Due to the popularity at the Batman TV series at the time, the fictional superhero Batman and his rogues gallery were prominently featured into the public eye. While the villain Killer Moth did not appear in the show, the comic book influence both him and Batman is believed to have some influence on the coinage of the name Mothman in the local papers. Following December 15, 1967 collapse of the Silver Bridge and the death of 46 people, the incident gave rise to the legend and connected the Mothman sightings 
to the bridge collapse. According to a Georgian newspaper, Russian UFOologists claimed that the Mothman sightings in the Moscow foreshadowed the 1999 Russian apartment bombings. The Mothman Prophecies was a major motion picture come out in 2002, which is loosely based on the 1975 book of the same name by John Keel. Also, in 2016, WCHS-TV published a photo reportedly of the Mothman taken by an anonymous man while driving on Route 2 in Mason County. Science writer Sharon Hill proposed that the photo showed, quote, a bird but perhaps an owl carrying a frog or a snake away, and wrote that there is zero reason to suspect that this is the Mothman as described in the legend. There are just too many far more reasonable explanations. Now, some people have done analysis of the information provided. Folklorist Jan Harold Brunvand notes that Mothman had been widely covered in the popular press, some claiming sightings connected to UFOs and others claiming that the military storage site was Mothman's, quote, home. Brunvan notes that recounts of the 1966-67 reports of Mothman usually state that there's at least 100 people who saw it and many more, quote, afraid to report the sightings, but observed that the written sources for such stories consisted with many children's books or sensationalized or undocumented accounts that failed to quote the sightings or even identifiable people. Brunvan found elements of uh, in common among many Mothman reports and much older folk tales, suggesting that something real may have triggered the scares and become woven into the existing folklore, but also records anecdotal tales of the Mothman supposedly attacking the roofs of parked cars occupied by teenagers. Conversely, Joe Nichols says that there's a number of hoaxes followed by the publicity generated with the original reports such as a group of construction workers who tied flashlights to helium balloons. Nickel attributes the Mothman stories to sightings of barred owls, uh, suggesting that the Mothman's glowing eyes were actually red eye effect caused by the reflection of light from flashlights or bright light sources. Benjamin Radford points out that the only report of glowing red eyes was secondhand, and it was that of Shirley Hensley quoting her father. One of the prevailing hypotheses associated with the Mothman at the time was the original sightings was being misidentified sandhill crane, again due to primary the size of the bird as well as the reddish flesh around the crane's eyes. Daniel Reed examined the migration patterns and historically reported sightings of sandhill cranes in that area of Point Pleasant and proposed that in cases where eye shine was not noted, it is statistically more likely that witnesses were seeing and misidentifying a great blue heron in Steg. According to the University of Chicago, psychologist David Gallo, 55 sightings of Mothman in Chicago during the 2017 published on the website of self-described Fortean researcher Lon Strickler are just a selective sample for Gallo explains that he is not sampling random people, but he's asking uh, if they saw Mothman, but he's just counting the number of people that voluntarily came forward with the report of sightings. According to Gallo, people more likely to visit a paranormal-centric website like Strickland's might also be more inclined to believe in it. 
and therefore are witnesses of the existence of Mothman are more likely to step forward. Some pseudoscience adherents, such as UFOologists, paranormal authors, and cryptozoologists, claim that the Mothman was an alien, or some supernatural manifestation, or even a previously unknown species of animal. In his 1975 book, Heal claimed that the Point Pleasant residents experienced precognitions, including premonitions of the collapsed Silver Bridge, UFO sightings, visits from inhuman and threatening men in black, and other phenomenon. Currently, Point Pleasant holds an annual Mothman Festival, with the first one being held annual Mothman Festival of 2002. The Mothman Festival began after brainstorming creative ways for people to visit Point Pleasant and to capitalize on the tourist attraction. The group organized the event and chose the Mothman to be the center of that festival due to its uniqueness and the way to celebrate its locals' legacy of the town. And according to the event organizer, Jeff Ramsley, the average attendance of the Mothman Festival is now estimated to be 10 to 12,000 people per year and only growing. A 12-foot-tall metallic statue of the creature, created by artist and sculptor Bob Roach, was unveiled in 2003. The Mothman Museum and Research Center opened in 2005. The festival is held on the third weekend of every September, hosting guest speakers, vendor exhibits, pancake-eating contests, and a hayride tour of locally notable areas. I very much hope you enjoyed both of tonight's tales. Although I'm not that much into cryptozoology, it is still important to understand that even sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. And there are real-life accounts and people that actually believe that they've experienced something paranormal, disastrous, supernatural, or mythical. If you enjoyed tonight's stories, please consider liking and subscribing. Also, don't forget to read the show notes for my affiliate links. They'll help me out monetarily, and it gives you a good deal as well. If you have any suggestions for future shows, drop me a line. I'm on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just look up Mythical True Crime Podcast, and you should see me there. I answer usually within 24 hours, and I'll be more than happy to speak with the community. My name is DJ. And this was the Mythical True Crime Podcast. Good night. Thank you very much for listening tonight and being part of the Mythical True Crime community, hosted by me, DJ. Subscribe to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get your weekly updates. And if you like what you hear, consider subscribing. Subscribing will directly support the show and the work that I'm doing. If you'd like to be a new supporter, consider clicking the link in the description box below. For less than a cup of coffee a month, you can help me continue to make great content for listeners everywhere. No commitment, cancel any time. This has been the Mythical True Crime Podcast. My name is DJ. Good night.